Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Welcome to our Thirsty Podcast. My name is Jeremy Lightnin, and I am here with Ziggy Stardust. All right. The character of the uh, David Bowie song, if I'm not mistaken. You would have to tell me I don't know any David Bowie songs. Okay, well, that is... Uh, I'm pretty sure I have that right. It's a character... It's, it's, uh, the, name, it's the name of a... Uh, David Bowie song, and uh, I, I just sort of picked that one. I was looking at the list, and I thought I'm just going to grab whatever first pops into my, into my sight, and that was the one. But it's actually kind of fitting because uh, today I wanted to uh, I wanted to bring a little culture to our podcast. You see, we end up talking a lot about um, comic books and movies, Star Wars, uh, uh, X-Men type of uh, superhero discussions. And uh, today, what we're looking at is Matthew chapters 26 through 28. And the first of those, first of those two chapters, or those three chapters, the first two is uh, what we call the Passion of, of Matthew. The Passion is just for a word that means suffering, um, the passion of the Christ. It means it's it's a record of his suffering, and, and all the all four gospels have a passion in them. Uh, in Matthew's is chapters twenty six through twenty seven, um, and the reason that I wanted to say that I'd like to bring a little more culture to our podcast is just because um, where I recently lived in Kansas, there was a little town called Lindsborg, uh, where there's actually a college. It's called Bethany College. Uh, many of you might know a Bethany College in Mankato, Minnesota. Uh, this is a different Bethany. It was started by Norwegians, uh, immigrants to Kansas. A uh, hundred or so years ago, and for the last uh, over a century now, um, every Good Friday they perform Bach's Saint Matthew's Passion. And uh, one time, I I was a you know when I first lived there and I was a pastor, I was calling to order tickets and uh, I was kind of saying to them, hey. I was kind of wondering why you scheduled this on Good Friday. Uh, a lot of the people who are most interested in it are probably going to be in church or leading worship like I am on Good Friday. And um, I didn't really say it that directly, but I was sort of questioning or curious about it. And, and the lady said, well, they've been doing it on Good Friday for the last several hundred, you know, for a hundred years or more. And I thought, well, okay, <laughs> that's probably a good tradition to have then. Uh, but uh I'm going to bring this up a lot as we go through these verses because it's interesting the way that um, Bach would interpret scripture. He would uh, interpret it musically and and uh, offer, uh, yeah, you, you get what I'm saying. Yeah, I like how you equated culture and then bringing Bach and equating that then with David Bowie. So that's good. It was both music. Okay. Music for the, on the music fronts. All right. Um, I guess some people would say professional wrestling is culture, so to each his own. Uh, so chapter 26 begins with Jesus and his disciples uh, at the home of Simon and the leper. Now, Simon's been cured of his leprosy, but he's still known as Simon the leper. I think that would be like people calling you Jer Bear for, for years after you lived in, in Kenosha. 
But this is a dinner in Simon's home. Mary and Martha and Lazarus are there. I'm sorry, have you been talking to uh, Kevin Hunley? I always talk to Pastor Hunley. Uh, And one of the commentaries I was reading, uh, I pointed this out, that the disciples are beginning to experience a failure. So uh, the disciples had just asked for uh, positions of glory on Jesus' left and right, and here is this woman that pours perfume on Jesus, and Jesus comments on how well uh, she she knows the scriptures and that uh, she is anointing him for his burial. Uh, so here's this woman that has this knowledge, this spiritual understanding, and it's only a small fraction of what the disciples knew, and yet she seems to have much more understanding than the disciples had. One of the things that I like about this is uh, verse 13. And it, I did one time do a little study to find out all of the amen statements in Matthew's gospel, in really all of the gospels, but I fo- especially focused on Matthew. And this woman gets an amen statement from Jesus. Uh, whenever he says this, it's always something that will always be true all the time in every circumstance. Uh, There are some things in the Bible that are true in certain circumstances and other things that are true at certain times. Uh, But when Jesus says amen or amen, amen, uh, he's saying this is a gem that that you can always depend on in every circumstance. And this is the one that he says for her. Amen, I tell you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the world, in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. And uh, I guess maybe the takeaway is, isn't it nice to have a, a personal touch to your religion? It's, it's not just a, a group of dogma or, or principles that you have to uphold or follow. It's about a, a person who really existed, a woman that uh, gave Jesus this wonderful gift. I think it also helps that Matthew is writing about the disciples' failures here. And this would help Matthew and the rest of the apostles as their pastors in their own local congregations as they remember this woman and and what she did here and that she's remembered. It would help them in the future by instilling in them patience for members of their congregations who weren't so quick on catching on to certain points of teaching. But right after that, then, the, the disciples get upset that this woman is spending all of this money uh, on, you know, they think it's wasting it, pouring it on Jesus. Uh, we learn in another gospel that the primary one is Judas. And Judas gets upset. And you can think maybe in a Bible study, we won't take the time here, of what was the motivation for Judas getting so upset? But then he goes and he, he's willing to hand Jesus over to the Pharisees. And it's interesting that the Pharisees had said earlier, they don't want to do this during the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And yet, what does Jesus do? He forces their hand. Uh, this, is, this is showing that even though Jesus is the one who is arrested and spat upon and beaten and crucified like a criminal, he's the one that's in control. And uh, the Pharisees pay off Judas with 30 pieces of silver, and they're probably using the offerings from the temple tax. And when I thought about that, I thought that one might be like, say, a pastor paying for a hitman on one of his members, but he pays off the hitman with the church's offerings. I mean, it's bad, 
but then it's worse because he's taking from the Lord. And that's what they're doing. But when you think that you're doing God's work, when you think uh, you are, I'm convinced that my way is right and that, uh, that, that God would agree with me if he appeared out of the blue and, and gave his opinion, he would be on my side, uh, then you don't have any, that's the scary thing, you don't have any problem with uh, taking the, the offering money to uh, use it in any way that you, that you please. Um, I, I also like pointing out the fact that uh, people are interested in godly topics when they want to be interested in them or it's when it's convenient. Uh, so it, that's kind of Jesus's point when he's saying, uh, you've got the poor with you and you can help them anytime that you want. Uh, but I don't think this is really about you helping the poor, is it? Uh, this is sort of what he's saying to them. Uh, you don't really care about the poor. Uh, that would be a good thing to be interested in on any other occasion. But right now, you're only using that as a way to harass this woman. What do you want to bring up about the Lord's Supper? I know we talked about the Lord's Supper with Mark's gospel, but I want to give you first options on talking about the Lord's Supper. Uh, one of the things that I like about Matthew's gospel is... Um, it, it leaves no room for confusion. Uh, not that the other Gospels do, but uh, a lot of times they will say, this is, uh, this is, my, this is the new covenant in my blood, or, or something along those lines. Whereas Matthew puts the equal sign very clearly right in between uh, this and my blood, and this and my body. Uh, this is my body, this is my blood. Uh, and uh, the, the covenant part is just a descriptor. And then with that wine, Matthew says that this is fruit of the vine. So this is going to be grape wine. It's not dandelion wine. It's not strawberry wine. It's grape wine. Now, the Jews would probably have diluted the wine with some water. Uh, that was their custom. And, and I was thinking of that last week when I visited our shut-ins because we have a very strong wine that we use here at Water of Life. It's a port wine, so it's fortified with brandy. And it's the first time in my 25 years in the ministry where I had one of the shut-ins ask me to water it down a little bit. And so I did. It was like two-thirds water, one-third wine. It's still uh, still the wine. and still then becomes Christ's uh, blood. But uh, as I was studying this, it made me think of, oh, what we were doing there was very similar to what they would have done in Jesus' time. Because you didn't drink the water, you drank the wine, but you got the water in with the wine. Really, wine uh, would have been more like what we today would call brandy or uh, uh, hard liquor. It was, it was very strong, so it had to be. It was, it was like making a mixed drink in order to uh, have a, a cup of wine. Um, I, I, I always like pointing out the fact that um, what is what is the big problem that we have with transubstantiation? The the Roman Catholic idea that um, the body uh, that uh, the bread and wine become Jesus' body and blood. Um, the, our biggest problem with it is not that Jesus' body and blood is there. That we would agree with the Catholics on. Our biggest problem with it is that they say there's no more bread and wine there, and and we would say Paul calls it the the cup even after. Uh, it has been consecrated. So there's there's body and blood there and there's bread and wine there at the same time. Yeah, and with that then, you need the words of institution by the pastor for it to become the sacrament. And then after you're done with the sacrament, then we as Lutherans teach it's no longer 
body and blood. Now it's returned to bread and wine, and that would be the difference between us and the Catholics was transubstantiation. And as you were talking about that, I was thinking of uh, one of our churches that I go and preach at in midweek Advent, that they have a practice the first Wednesday in Advent, they have communion. And I was there participating in the communion service, and I got up there and I was ready to, to bless the elements during the Sanctus, and I picked up the, uh, the chalice, and I'm going to be pouring uh, the, wa- the wine in, and the flagon, the pitcher, is empty. So I, I could only consecrate the individual cups. And then during the Agnostei, I went into the sacristy, but everything's locked up. So I had to wait until uh, someone came so I could have some wine in the common cup. But then, and the reason I tell the story is because then I had to stop and then I consecrated the elements again because otherwise it would have been you know, unsure. You know, can God's words go into the sacristy? Sure. But we want to give confidence to the worshipers that it's really Christ's body and blood. And so then there I, I paused the service, consecrated the elements again, and then went on with the service. Uh, I've done that as well um, in, in occasions where things like that have happened, that is very important. That's what the Formula of Concord talks about in the article on uh, Holy Communion, that uh, the whole point of it is not that it be done secretly, not that it be, you know, we say, oh, uh, I said the words uh, all on my own. No, it is for the congregation to hear so that the people, the people can be sure that, uh, that Christ has uh, made his sacrament valid there. Um, I, uh, I I wanted to move to the part about um, the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, the temptation of Jesus, or the, the torment of Jesus really beginning there. Uh, and the transition point uh, I wanted to point at was verse 34. Uh, I mentioned before Jesus gave an amen statement to the woman uh, that her story would be told wherever his gospel is preached. Well, now you get another amen statement in verse 34. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Amen, I tell you, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Uh, this is something that's going to come true. Jesus has affirmed it with, with that oath formula. And as I said before, Jesus is succeeding even though he's the one that's going to be arrested and beaten up, he's the one who is in control. He's succeeding. How does he succeed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, he prays to his Heavenly Father for strength to overcome the temptation in the coming hours. And even at this time, he is carrying the full load of our sins. Verse 38 says that his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He is Drinking the cup, verse 37, that his father wanted him to drink. He asked that if it was possible, this cup could be taken away from him. And yet he was resigned to his father's will. And this is the same cup that is mentioned earlier. I just preached on this text this last week when James and John asked for positions of power in Jesus' earthly kingdom. Jesus asked him, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink from? Can you be baptized with a baptism I'm going to be baptized with? And they don't have any clue what they're talking about or what Jesus is talking about. And they, yeah, yeah, we can do that. But Jesus is saying that he could, he's going to be drinking the cup of the poison of God's wrath upon humanity's sins. 
uh, they can't drink that. And yet, he does that so that the disciples can drink the cup of blessing, that Jesus drinks the cup of our of humanity's suffering, God's wrath over our sins, so that you and I, for the rest of our lives here on earth, can drink the cup of blessing every time the Lord's Supper is uh, is offered. I mentioned uh, J.S. Bach, St. Matthew Passion at the beginning, and uh, just as a word of comment on that, um, all of these verses are put to music uh, in the in the text of Matthew's Gospel, but then they're interspersed with different uh, arias and, and chorales and choir pieces and solos and things like that that interpret the words. Uh, but the one that really stands out in my mind is the one coming up uh, on verses 47 and following. Um, this is the part that talks about Judas coming to betray Jesus, and he tells the other soldiers and officers of the chief priests that he is going to kiss the one that is the man they should arrest. Um, of course, the reason that was useful to them is because there were a lot of guys uh, camped out in this olive grove uh, in the middle of the night. It was dark. A lot of them had very similar styles of clothing, very similar beards. And so uh, they needed to know, let's make sure we arrest the right guy. Um, and so that that's what made Judas's kiss so critical. Um, but the uh, point I wanted to bring up about the St. Matthew Passion that Bach wrote is uh, this is maybe one of the most dramatic uh, pieces of music in the whole Passion. And um, they, the, the, the choir is asking the question in, in song, um, why, isn't, uh, the, why isn't the earth opening up and swallowing this man Judas? Why, isn't, uh, why aren't the thunders and lightnings that God created crashing down on this man Judas and uh, punishing him for this awful, awful thing that he's doing of betraying Jesus and uh, handing him over to his enemies. And um, of course, I've heard that many times uh, listening to the Passion and given some thought to that answer, but uh, did, what what would you say to the, to answer that question? Why isn't why doesn't uh, the earth just open up and swallow this awful, awful person doing this awful, awful thing? Yeah, and that's where Jesus is again allowing this to happen. We'll see it later on with the, the spit that's just, you can imagine, I never imagined it until, again, studying this, just, I thought just like one gob of spit on Jesus' face with a sanogen. But imagine, uh, you know, several gobs and just coming down his face. Or even being caked with it. Yeah. Exactly. Why would he allow this to happen? Well, he's allowing this mistreatment in the garden uh, and the embarrassment, I guess you could say, with his own, one of his best friends, his disciples that had been with him for three years, betraying him into the hands of his enemies, then allowing himself to be humiliated in such a way to be spat upon. Well, it's he's humbling himself, but it's also our sins. Our sins have put him in that position to answer your answer your question i guess if it, if jesus would have swallowed up the earth to uh, or opened up the earth to swallow those soldiers and judas and the sanhedrin well then it should open up to swallow us too because it's our sins that are putting him into that situation yeah yeah he wanted to remove them and take them away and that couldn't be done without uh, him taking the punishment um the uh, you also get the little bit about um, Peter 
hacking off the guy's ear. Uh, and I think this is a, an important thing to uh, for us to discuss a little bit too, that uh, what Jesus says here is still true today. Those who take the sword will die by the sword. Um, I, I remind my students of that when we go through Reformation history and we talk about Ulrich Zwingli. Uh, he was the radical reformer who thought uh, that the way to get the work of the church done was to uh, put on armor and go into battle and fight with a sword. And so he's often depicted in statues as carrying a sword. Of course, his followers erected those statues seeing him as a hero, but um, uh, when Luther heard that he had died in battle, uh, Luther said, well, those who carry the sword, or those who lift the sword will die by the sword. Was it Amsdorf? Was he the one that led the Peasants' Revolt too? Or not so much the revolt, but uh, pulling out all of the articles of faith from the churches? There, uh, I, I, you might think of Karlstadt? Karlstadt is the guy I'm yeah. thinking of, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of, of uh, that also leading a religious, I think it's more like a revolt then. But, a rev- uh, yeah, a revolution. revolution that, yeah. Uh, well, let's, it, it, it's, it's an important distinction to make that uh, Christ gets the work of his church done by speaking and by his word. And uh, his other arm, the government, he gets his work done by uh, by force, and and we need to make sure not to mingle the work of uh, the force with the work of the church. Right. I think a lot of what we need to be doing is saying no when we see things happening, and then saying yes with the gospel. Uh, one of the things that we can do, and going back a little bit with Jesus telling his disciples to pray for him, is we can lift up others in prayer. Uh, we lift up God's kingdom in prayer. We pray for our pastors. Uh, we're at the end of October. October has been set aside for Pastor Appreciation Month. But pray for your pastors, your teachers, your missionaries, the church, your church workers. They need your support. They need you awake and active. Uh, you ready to get into the Sanhedrin? Yes. So the Sanhedrin was the Jewish high ruling council. It contained 71 members. So there's 70 members plus the high priest. And I think it's important to remember, because we'll talk about these two guys later on in the next chapter, is Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are members of the Sanhedrin. They're secret disciples of Jesus. And then, as Jesus is before the Sanhedrin, uh, they, they say, tell us if you are the Christ of God. And Jesus says to the high priest, It is as you said, but I tell you, soon you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So I bring that up because as we're recording this, we're in the season of end times. So Jesus is talking about returning on the last day in his glory. And Jesus knew that on the last day, he would come back as the judge with all glory and power. A few Bible passages about that. Revelation 1.7 says, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, including those who pierced him. And here, before the high priest, Jesus is identifying himself as the Son of Man that Daniel had talked about in Daniel 7. Daniel says, I kept watching the night visions, and there in the clouds of heaven I saw one like a Son of Man coming. He came to the, anci- he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was brought before him. To him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom. All peoples, nations, and languages will worship him. His dominion is an eternal dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. 
and all the Jewish teachers, these members of the Sanhedrin, knew that Daniel is referring to the Son of Man, to the Messiah, and Jesus is equating himself with that Messiah. Uh, and so Jesus had remained silent when all the other charges were brought against him. And yet with this charge, he speaks up. So it's almost as if he's waiting for this one charge uh, the one charge that was true, then he, that's when he speaks up and he says, yeah, I am the son of God. And it's for that reason that they condemn him. Uh, I'll dive back into my St. Matthew passion just with this part of the Sanhedrin trial. Uh, you uh, can take a look at uh, the witnesses, the uh, eyewitnesses, not eyewitnesses, but the witnesses, the false witnesses that they called uh, in verses 59 and 60. But then uh, in verse 60 and 61, it says that finally uh, two came forward and uh, this is what they said. Now, what is interesting is that uh, the way that Bach wrote this music is as a duet and that it was a, um, a, a two male voices singing and it, it sort of just replicates in a musical way what happened in this trial. And, and then the interesting thing is, I don't want to say that it's like disharmonious or, or not beautiful. It's, it's pretty music, but you can tell there's something kind of off with the way that the music is written so that uh, even their story uh, did not totally line up with each other and, and that is reflected a little bit in this duet as they're singing uh, this fellow said I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days um, of course he's talking about his body not the physical structure and then you get into the next chapter you ready to move on then mm -hmm. is uh, in the morning the chief priests and the elders reach a decision to put Jesus to death. So Jewish law did not allow them to make decisions at night, so they had to meet briefly in the morning to make their decisions seem legal, and yet they still don't have the right to put someone to death. They have to bring Jesus to Pilate. And when Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin, he answered only one question, are you the son of God? And now Jesus stands before Pilate and he again answers only one question. And that question is, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered that question, but no more. Uh, these two questions alone get to the heart of the matter. He is the son of God who had come to earth to establish God's kingdom of grace and mercy. In addition, Jesus wanted to go to the cross and die for our sins. And the two answers he gave provided enough material for the religious leaders, I am the son of God, and the secular leader saying, I am a king, to condemn him. Uh Pontius Pilate has the uh, episode in here with his wife, where his wife is uh, very distraught that he is involved with condemning Jesus because she had a dream in which uh, it, was, it really troubled her. Uh, we don't know much about it other than that, but somehow Matthew had the inside scoop on uh, what happened within Pilate's own uh, household uh, about all of these things. And um, that, of course, is a, a part that's sung with a woman's voice. Uh, a female solo is singing the part of Pontius Pilate's wife, telling him about the dream. But then, uh, and this is uh, in the second half of the Passion, one of the most climactic moments, um, it's verse 21, when the governor asked them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, 
there's a long, it's not a long pause, actually it's a very short pause, but the full choir, the absolute totality of every singer in the in the production just belts and, and screams at the top of their lungs, Barabam in German is Barabas Barabas they they shout it and it it really does it it catches you off guard even when you know it's coming and uh, it it really kind of reminds you of what it would have been like with this mob mentality this crowd that is frothing and and going crazy uh, wanting to see wanting to see blood and then you have the sinless son of God he's put on the cross suffering for humanity's sins mocking bleeding or mocked, bleeding, bruised, and suffering terrible pain. But again, Jesus is victorious here in his humility. He's allowing this to happen to save humanity from their sins. Uh, anything you want to get into uh, before you start talking about what happens on the cross? I, I, I think I'm ready to go into okay. that. So verse 46, uh, this is one of the seven words, uh, seven statements that Jesus says from the cross combined from the four gospels he says my god my god why have you forsaken me uh, that's right from psalm 22 verse 1 uh, where david writes my god my god why have you forsaken me my groaning does nothing to save me my god i call out by day but you do not answer i call out by night but there is no relief for me so jesus was forsaken uh, in our place and in the place of all sinners the Lord charged all of our guilt to him, Isaiah 53, 6. We have all gone astray like sheep. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has charged our guilt to him. And here, Jesus suffers the very torment of hell in the place of all sinners. 2 Corinthians five twenty one. God made him who did not know sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And the worst part of the torment of hell is the total separations from the blessings of God because of sin. Uh, it often struck me or, or really confused me that uh, some of the people there would think that when Jesus said, Eli, Eli, Lama, or yeah, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, uh, that uh, why would they think that he's calling for Elijah? That's a weird character just to grab out of the Old Testament. Um, but uh, the fact is, you you had either, maybe you would say Roman soldiers who knew very little about Hebrew or what they did know about the Jewish religion uh, was kind of piecemeal, or you had people that were not the most scholarly uh, students of Judaism that were hanging out at the cross, uh, you know, poking fun at G. Of course, you had the f- Pharisees and chief priests that were, but you also had others that weren't as uh, enlightened. And and just hearing Jesus cry out the word for my God, my God, Eli, Eli, it sounds uh, almost exactly like the way you would have pronounced Elijah in, uh, in, in Jesus' time in Aramaic as well. And then I found this really interesting too. You know, I, I knew that Jesus was on the cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. He dies at 3 p.m. And then the whole earth, you know, it shakes, it gives up, they're dead, there's an earthquake, and then there's a tearing of the curtain temple. But I never put together until, until just now in that the evening sacrifice of the, the priests was at 3 p.m., the time that Jesus died, the time then that the 
curtain of the temple is torn in two, which symbolizes that Jesus removed the barrier barrier between a holy God and sinful mankind. Uh, Hebrews 10, Brothers, we have confidence to enter the most holy place through the blood of Jesus. It is a new and living way he opened up to us through the curtain that is his flesh. And then 2 Corinthians 5.19, that is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. And then I want to bring up that Joseph, uh, after Jesus dies, goes to Pilate and requests the, the corpse of Jesus. And Joseph was a rich man. And the use of his grave as the tomb of Jesus fulfilled a prophecy. Isaiah 53, 9, uh, that the suffering servant would receive a grave with the rich in his death. I always like to point out the fact that it's also a new tomb. Uh, in other words, Jesus was the first one buried in it. There is no way that uh, there could have been any other person that came out of it than the one who was dead on Friday. Um, it was nobody else ever had been buried in it. Um, so it, it, yet another, the book of Acts talks all over the place about proving your faith and about the many proofs of Christ and his resurrection. And uh, this is a good example of that. Um, and uh, the, the one that I wanted to talk about right before we move into the next chapter is um, in verse 65. Um, it, I, I have a lot of questions about this one. I don't know if you'll be able to answer any of them, but... Um, Pontius, if you have questions of me, probably not. Pontius Pilate says, you have a guard. Uh, and he's telling them that you're, you're going to, they, they have a guard to guard the tomb. And uh, I've seen it depicted where this, these are Roman soldiers. In fact, that's actually what is on the triptych of our church is the helmet of a Roman soldier is at the empty tomb. But uh, was Pontius Pilate giving them some of his guard? Or I've also seen it depicted as the temple guard, the temple police that would be put in charge of guarding the tomb. And uh, Pontius Pilate is just telling them, you guys have your own police. You don't need me to give it. You You go ahead and make it as secure as you want with your own police. All right. All I can do is give you the, uh, the answer I found. So it's okay. not really my answer. Uh, so it, it asks the question, were these a Jewish guard or Roman soldiers? So if it was a Jewish guard... This explains why the guards report to the Jewish leaders in Matthew 28, verse 11. Although they might have come to the Jewish leaders mainly to get these leaders to speak to Pilate on their behalf to protect them from their failure to keep the tomb sealed. Uh, but if it was a Roman guard, that fits better with Matthew 28, verses 12 through 15, where they're call, called soldiers and have to answer to Pilate. So that's from the EHV notes. The EHV notes say they, they're not sure either. Ah, okay. Well, I'm glad I'm glad one of us did our research. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Pastor Ziggy Stardust. <laughs> uh, but I wanted to bring this up, too, in that Matthew spends a lot of time on Jesus' burial. Why is that? Uh, you know, what's the significance of Joseph, Joseph's request to have the body? And Joseph is a man of wealth and position. He makes a formal request to give... Uh, Jesus' body a proper burial because it would be easy to claim that the disciples took the body from the cross or from, you know, if the soldiers just put it in a, a mass grave and then, oh, all of a sudden he's alive. But 
Joseph, as a rich man and a religious leader, could bear witness to the fact that he bear, that he uh, personally buried Jesus in his own tomb and then covered it with a rock. And then Mark, Matthew talks about how uh, Pilate gave an order. So Pilate himself ordered Joseph to bury Jesus. And any disciple that stole Jesus' body would be committing a crime against the state and putting his life in jeopardy. And if the disciples were afraid of being seen with Jesus, associated with Jesus while he was alive these the last 24 hours, you don't think they're going to put their lives uh, uh, at jeopardy when the, the Roman governor is after them. Uh, why does Matthew mention the big stone? Well, because it's big enough. It's hard to roll away. Plus, he says it's sealed. And then why mention the guard at the gravesite? From hindsight, what would have made the Pharisees' position more firm? If a guard had been posted or if the tomb had left, been left unattended. And so, uh, you know, if the religious leaders, again, in hindsight, if they just would have left it open, if they were left it unsealed and unguarded, they could have said, well, the disciples just came and took the body. But because it's there's a stone in front of it, it's sealed, and it has uh, r- soldiers, whether they're Jewish or no. uh, Roman, in front of them, and it's in a new tomb. Like, is it all of that testifies through Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead? The disciples didn't just pick his body up off of a mass grave. A lot of times it is our own... Um zeal like that uh, ends up getting us working against us uh, that's that's really what you're kind of saying about the chief priests is they were so bent they were so stubbornly insistent on uh, getting it the way that they wanted to have it orchestrating the whole thing that they ended up orchestrating a much stronger case for the resurrection and that's really what uh, we get into with chapter 28 um, th- we could we could do a whole Bible study series just on this one chapter. Uh, there's lots of things to talk about with uh, baptism and teaching and the Great Commission. Uh, there are even more things to talk about with Jesus' resurrection in the first uh, 10 verses or so. Uh, I think the most that I want to talk about today, though, is one of my, it's it's kind of becoming a sort of once in a while favorite section of scripture for me, and that is verses 11 through uh, 15. Uh, simply because it, it is so fascinating to me to look at the reaction of Jesus' enemies when they hear news of his resurrection. Uh, and I've got things I want to say about that, but I didn't want to just blow past. The only thing I wanted to bring up with the the resurrection is uh, the good news that the angels gave to the women, saying, he is not here, he has risen. Uh, there he's saying Jesus has defeated sin, death, and Satan, the unholy trinity. His work is finished. Eternal life was there. And then the angel continues, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. Uh, that's Galilee is where Jesus hung out with the majority of his ministry with the disciples. So here Jesus has not forsaken the disciples because of their unfaithfulness. Um. And again, just sermon after sermon could be preached on those. And every Easter we do preach sermon after sermon on on that account. Um, 
but uh, it's this it's this viewpoint of Jesus' enemies that that really fascinates me, and and what it is is that uh, I, I think it's best summed up. My family is going to know when they listen to this episode that I'm what I'm referring to a video, uh, a Lutheran satire video. Uh, if you're if you're familiar with that at all, it. Uh, it, it depicts the the soldier coming and running to tell the chief priests about the resurrection, and the soldier is talking. He's kind of a silly, goofy little guy, and he's talking about how he um, he he believes that this happened because he saw it happen because it actually did happen, and um, and and what is interesting is that Jesus' enemies do not deny it. At no point do they say. Uh, you are lying, or oh, you are you are hallucinating, or you're wrong. That didn't actually happen. You just imagined it. No, they very clearly uh, affirm by they they don't say it out loud, but by their response, they affirm that they know this is true. the The fact is that Jesus rose from the dead. They admit it by saying, "Here is money. Please tell a different story." And uh, the the point that video uh, Lutheran satire video tries to make, and I think it's a good one, is that a lot of times we think that uh, people are unbelievers just because they haven't had all the information yet, and that's true. Sometimes that is true that people refuse uh, that people are unbelievers because they have not heard the whole story. But here we have actually a case where you you have heard the whole story. You do know all the facts about it. And they still rejected it. Um, and, and sometimes that is just what you find when you bring the good news of Christ's resurrection. Uh, even uh, I, I could tell a personal story. It's, it wouldn't be very long, but I had a conversation with a woman one time where I said, you, you can see all of the evidence I could prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus died and then came back from the dead. And, and she just still kind of shook her head and said, no, I, yeah, I, I get it. I get what you're saying, but... Uh, I can't. I can't buy into it. And then getting into the Great Commission, verse eighteen, and, and this strikes me because I just preached on this this last Sunday of James and John, the sons of thunder, that they want positions of authority in Jesus' kingdom. The other disciples, they're angry uh, at James and John because they thought to ask for it first. They want authority, and now what does Jesus say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. They wanted authority. He has it. Uh, he always had it, but he humbled himself uh, so they didn't make use of it. Uh, but now he has that authority because the Father has given it back to him. This is his exaltation. Before it was his humiliation. In this exaltation, uh, he has completed his work as a savior, and now the father entrusts the responsibility to rule and judge the world to the son. Uh, and so then as a result, Jesus issues a great commission with the full authority uh, of God the father. So Jeremy, verse 19, how have you always read that translation from the NIV and so forth? Therefore, go and make, make disciples. But do you notice the way the EHV translates it? Uh, gather disciples. Yeah. Do you yeah. know why? Uh, I've, I've heard an explanation, but uh, go ahead and... Okay, well, I can just read you their notes. Because uh, they are interesting, I think. Uh, traditionally, the verb translated gather disciples has been uh, translated to teach uh, or to make disciples. 
but in scripture, this Greek verb is used as an active transitive sense, and it's only used two times, once here and one in Acts 14. And so there's not a lot of data in order to translate it. But the verb basically means to disciple. So therefore, go and uh, disciple other disciples. You know, you be a disciple by discipling others. Uh, but what would be the issue? I guess I never thought of it until this. What would be the issue that we as Lutherans have of go and make disciples? Uh, n- none. Well, I think for us as Lutherans, is it, it sounds like we can do it. And and this is actually a, a study that I've listened in on about that verb for making disciples. Um, that that's a good verb. It, it's a good it's a good way to. Translated into English, because uh, this is this is Jesus has presented himself to us as a God who works through means. He works through bread and wine. He works through water, and he also works through human beings. Uh, and so it's it's not false to say. Uh, well, Saint Paul says in First Corinthians. I, that I, I I might save some. I want to save people. And we would, you know, immediately jump up and say, well, it's, it's not you, Paul. It's not you saving them. It's Jesus. Yes, that's true. Um, but he also talked that way because the Holy Spirit inspired him to talk that way. And uh, it's true for this verb, too, that um, it is actually the the teachers and preachers of God's word that are making the disciples, uh, which there shouldn't be any problem with as long as you understand it is uh, Christ who is working through them. Yeah. And, but I, I like that, that idea of gathering disciples. Uh, you do make disciples through word and sacrament, but you gather them around word and sacrament. That was my chapel devotion with our Wisconsin Lutheran school students today. I preached, uh, I preached on the text of Revelation 14 verses six and seven, which is the epistle lesson that was then preached on for Martin Luther's funeral of the angel sharing the eternal gospel. And then I talked about how, you know, that message of the angel of uh, worshiping and glorifying, uh, that's something that these kids should be doing all the time by coming to church, by being in school, uh, remembering their baptism, Lord willing, one day they'll be receiving the sacrament. And in that way, in chapel today, in our school, at your high school, uh, Lord willing, on Sunday, as we celebrate Reformation in our church, we're gathering disciples together to make disciples, but then also, uh, if they're already converted, then we are strengthening the disciples. We're discipling the disciples. Anything else you want to bring up on Matthew 28? Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> but uh, today's not the day. Yeah, I thought it was kind of funny that we were, we were talking before we started recording that we're only going to go through three chapters today. So we should be a short one. And we still got close to 50 minutes. We're, we're pushing it, yes. Yeah. But there's a lot in here. Like you said, we, we're cutting ourselves really short mm-hmm. uh, on these three chapters. So... Um, yeah, so today we finished Matthew's gospel, and Jeremy and I were talking. What we're going to do is uh, we're going to study the, the next uh, three episodes. are going to be on St. Paul's pastoral epistles. So, we'll, so go ahead and read the first five chapters of 1 Timothy. Then we're going to study 1 Timothy 6 and the first, well, the three chapters of 2 Timothy is that right? And then we'll, we'll go into Titus. But the key is we're going to do that. And then we're going to skip Luke 
because we just covered Mark and Matthew, and, and then we're going to go right into Hebrews. And we'll probably have to take a couple of weeks off because Jeremy and I are going to get kind of busy with uh, Thanksgiving and, and, East, and Christmas in there, not Easter yet. So today we finished Matthew's Gospel, so I'm going to finish up with the Flash heroes and villains. Uh, now, you may not have done a lot of research on your guy. I did, had to do a lot of digging on this one because this one was one I didn't know of either. So this guy, he was struck by lightning, and so he was given the ability to extract the life force from other people to extend his life. And then he had an increased metabolism that allows him to heal faster than normal. So this is Pastor Zarling with Cicada. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life.